Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. This week, we hear from Jane Nigel Quintig, a former art student who wanted to create a product that was not only fun, but really useful. Here's her story. It all started when I was studying product design at the Royal College of Art here in London, And a few weeks into the course, I realised, oh my God, I've made an awful mistake. This is really not for me. Because I guess in terms of values, I grew up on a farm. I grew up making art and sculpture and stuff. And I really thought that I could apply my creativity into product design. But what I realised very quickly was that actually product design is very often driven by just creating stuff for the sake of it. And for me... That just doesn't make sense. And so I started thinking about rather than designing a new chair or a new lamp or a new phone just for the sake of it, could I think of ways to get people to have a more thoughtful relationship with the stuff that they already have? So could they fix it? Could they upgrade it, customise it and make it better in some way? And so that's where Sugru came from. Sugru itself, if you look at it, it looks like plasticine. It doesn't look like the kind of thing that someone created. Did you go out to make this product in the first place? Yeah, it started with the idea, really. I just had this idea and I had some experiments that I'd done with existing silicone materials. And I just had this idea of like a space age rubber that if you could form it and if it could bond to all these different materials, that you could have something that would be durable outdoors so that you could customise and repair outdoor equipment or furniture or... If you could design something that would be dishwasher proof, you could do it for all kind of kitchen stuff. I imagine it like this kind of futuristic plasticine. And it really was about like sitting with that vision and then letting my imagination go wild. I mean, in the first few weeks after I had the idea for it, I basically filled up notebook after notebook of little cartoons of ideas of what could be done with it. From like totally practical stuff like filling cracks and you know mending a door handle or whatever to just daft stuff like, you know, dogs love chewing shoes. Could we make shoes? chewier you know what I mean just nutty stuff and basically then at my exhibition at the Royal College of Art when I was graduating I'd done this little book of 100 ideas of how this material would be used and it was there with a little prototype of course it didn't exist it was just a concept but people really believed it and they really loved it so they started going like oh yeah how much is it can I buy some and I was kind of like mm, yeah that's just a really nicely done concept prototype but I didn't say that and then I just kind of collected people's email addresses. I said yeah I'll let you know as soon as it's available you know once I left college I ended up teaming up with Roger Ashby who's our company chairman and he was a serial entrepreneur and so Together with him, we were able to find specialists in silicone industry and patent lawyers, you know, people to help us actually set up a business. I had absolutely no idea. I mean, I'm coming from a creative background. I'm not to say creative people are not good business people because actually I think they are once they get into it. But business for me is a means to an end. So I had this idea for Sugru and I had this sort of idea of the cultural change that it could represent in terms of helping us get over our throwaway culture or whatever. And I suppose business is the vehicle to make that happen. 
How did you get from that drawing board idea to actually making this? Well, from that vision of what the material could be like, I basically had to figure out how to make it real. And I ended up teaming up with some amazing scientists who had retired out of Dow Corning, which is one of the world's largest silicone groups. Through Roger, my business partner, I met them because he was very networked into the universities and the science community in the different universities from Southampton and Exeter and Imperial College and stuff. And they'd retired, but they had a lifetime of knowledge of silicon industry and like 50 patents each on technology. So they liked what the idea of it was and they were just willing to kind of get involved. But money was extremely limited. And I suppose naively at the start, I probably thought, oh, yeah, like we could pay some scientists to formulate this. Whereas like little knowing how incredibly expensive that is. The big companies that make materials like this spend millions and millions creating a new one. But we started on a grant from Nesta of £35,000. Nesta being? Nesta is an innovation think tank. And these days it does more policy and stuff, but... 10, 15 years ago, when we were getting started on the materials, they had a creative pioneer fund to get creative people into business. We couldn't afford to pay the scientists to actually do the science. So I paid them to direct me doing the science. And we hired a little studio in Bethnal Green where I set it up as a lab and we just bought weighing scales, we bought precision measuring equipment. You know what I mean? This where is do like, you get this stuff from? Well, that's the thing. It's very difficult for individuals or small unproven companies to buy these things. But anyway, we just persisted. And of course, they were able to guide me as to exactly what to buy and where to start with the chemistry and how to get going. So basically, I spent about two years formulating little pieces like little chewing gums in a very disciplined and methodical way, observing the properties of these materials that I was developing. And they helped us to write patents and file patents. And we worked with some amazing patent lawyers at Marks and Clerk, some of Europe's best patent attorneys who are chemists in themselves. So me as a novice, I was lucky to be able to meet people and motivate them with the idea and to be able to kind of team up with them. And it was a real combination of just hands on willpower and hard work and then the right expertise. Where was the tipping point where it went from being this small operation in an East End studio to a global business? Well, we spent quite a few years figuring out how we would actually get this to market. And early on, when I was formulating the chemistry, there was no sense of well, we could really bring that to market ourselves. So we ended up meeting all the big glue companies and talking to them about licensing them the IP that we had developed and so on. But this is pre-2008, pre-recession. Nobody was talking about repair or making culture. And so they were very polite and they listened to us and they even helped us on some of the stuff like the compliance and stuff like that. But I suppose... At one stage, I kind of realised there's no money on the table and we're running out of money or whatever. And then we ended up going through a really hard time around the recession where we'd run out of our funding and we were a bit off launching or having a way to launch onto the market. So that was really tricky. I suppose my idea for Sugar had always been so big. I'd always thought it should be like blue tack or sellotape or duct tape or something. It should be in everyone's kitchen drawer. It's like the fixing thing of the future. Mm. And then... The turning point, I think, for me was when I was having a cup of tea with a friend and she just sort of said, Jane, I know you really want Sugru to be big, but maybe you need to start small. Maybe you just scale down your expectations, start small, make it good, get a few people to like it and you can grow from there. So what did that mean doing? 
Well, that meant really a shift in my mindset. And it was extremely empowering because saying you can do something small and make it good, then I changed the business plan so that we needed less money, ended up going, actually, the internet is amazing now because between 2003 when I'd come up with the idea to now like 2008, bloggers were getting big, YouTube was really getting going and people were starting to put their credit card details in very freely. So, you know, you kind of had a bit of, a, I suppose, serendipity in that timing was on our side at that stage to say, well, actually, yeah, we could build this brand ourselves, launch it online and sell to people directly and find our tribe. It's not that easy, but it is easy if you get the ingredients right. So with Sugru, we had an amazing product that really worked and it was really different than anything else that's out there. So if you come across it, you're going to be pretty intrigued to try it out. So the product was good and we knew it worked so we could be confident in it. We could be confident giving it to people to review and all that. And then the other piece of it is that we have a really big mission. Like we have this idea that um, we can overcome our throwaway culture by just getting hands on and fixing things and being imaginative with stuff. And that's something that's really suited to the Internet because you've got a higher cause it's not just about flogging stuff. It's about doing stuff together and joining people together who can inspire each other. So we ended up launching it in such a way that was just telling people like, hey, we want to change things. We believe that fixing should be something that everyone can do. Basically, then, if you can be really clear about what you believe in, the people who believe the same kind of gravitate towards you. Was this about your early adopters? Who were these people who were telling others about Suguru? They were just people who came out of the woodwork. You know, we were very lucky early on. I found it very hard to get journalists to understand what Sugru was. But Harry Wallop at the Daily Telegraph had a video review where he would review the newest gadget every week. Honestly, nobody else answered our calls. They just thought we were nuts. But he rang me on the Friday morning and goes, OK, this looks cool. If you can come down today and make a video, then I'll do it. So I got on my bike, went down with the product, made the video with him. And then the Tuesday after we were due to launch and I had no money. I actually went into the Tesco to look at the Daily Telegraph because I didn't have money to buy it. It wasn't in the paper, but then I went back to the office and something was happening on my computer screen. And basically where we had set up the link in our e-commerce to PayPal, I would get an email every time somebody had bought it. And my email was basically like a virus. It was like rain going down my email because so many people were buying Sugru. And he had basically published the video and given it like a 10 out of 10 review. And so I think... Those people that loved Sugar early on were either influential people who were bloggers or techie kind of people, or they were just ordinary people who just really loved the idea of fixing stuff. So the old media of newspapers like The Telegraph was also important as much as the new media bloggers and tweeters. Yeah, I'd say so. But it was the old media behaving in a new way. So it was them making a video and tweeting about it rather than putting it in the paper paper. Right. Tell me about the donkey and the B&Q store. <laughs> OK, well, early on when we were launching, B&Q was one of our first retailers. And this is before we had a marketing team or anything. And we were just so lucky to get a deal with B&Q. We went straight away nationwide with them. It was a massive order. It's probably the biggest order we'd ever got. 
And I suppose the first kind of like initial reaction in the company was, this is fantastic. And then once we started shipping the order, we were starting to panic a little bit. Well, what if it doesn't sell? So then like we just kind of got together as a team. What are we going to do? So at that time, YouTube was really one of our main kind of ways of communicating with people. And so we thought, okay, let's reach out to all our existing customers and get them to go to B&Q and buy it. (laughs) Because we just didn't have the confidence to think that strangers would buy it. And so what you do, well, like you can't do anything boring. So my husband suggested at the time, like he was just like, okay, we just need to get them to get their arse down to B&Q. Ah, let's get an ass to B&Q. Like it's just a silly one line joke, but. We ended up taking it seriously and hiring a donkey and uh, filming it at the car park at B&Q. Well, the staff thought it was hilarious in fairness. And the amazing thing was that although not that many people saw the video, I think it was like 20,000 views or something, a board member at B&Q ended up being one of those 20,000 people. And he sent an email to the whole kind of group leadership team going like, well done, guys, I love how creative you're being, which, of course, they didn't give us any permission and we were just doing it. But um, yeah, it just shows like you just never know who's going to see something. So like you just do what you have to do. A lot of people would think that social media is a cheap way to market a business. Is that fair? I would say early on when we were launching and we had something so remarkable, then it was extremely efficient and very cheap way of getting the word out. But as a business goes on, it's not sustainable because you end up just talking to a little club where actually you're aiming to talk to millions of target customers and the internet has kind of changed now. Like you basically don't get anything for free. And so you just got to know how to work the system and how to analyze your data and do your targeting. But I would say still that I think the biggest currency on the internet is to be interesting and to do valuable stuff for people. So the principle is still the same, but it's not as cheap as it was. Now you're in stores across different countries, in Target across the US, as well as stores like Tesco, B&Q in the UK and other countries. Yeah, well, we have achieved so much. There's two million people around the world using Sugru now. And I suppose although like we've achieved that level of success, we still feel like we're really at the beginning. Okay, so we've gone from one person and now we're 70 people in our headquarters in East London and we have an amazing team. Like, and I suppose that's probably the biggest transition really is in the team. And you've improved from a few little machines in the studio. How do you make this stuff now? Yeah, so after we launched and we needed to scale up the manufacturing, we moved up to Hackney where we could get a bigger space. And we bought industrial machinery. I just ended up hiring a production manager, hiring the right people. We were able to raise investment, you see, once the demand was proven. And we grew little by little, I suppose, the first two years. And then once we started getting into retail, then we probably had to get serious. We had to put in like a formal board We hired, I'd say, three years ago now, a general manager and COO, a guy called Porik Begley, who was an early investor, actually, in the company. But he just had amazing international supply chain operational R&D experience. And he was able to underpin the kind of enthusiasm and the vision that I had with like, okay, this is how we're actually going to do it and manage people and HR and how to look after people and how to get orders to Amazon on time when they fine you if like some little digit is wrong on the label. 
although I think that we're still at the beginning of what we can achieve, it's unrecognisable what we are today to what we were. And we've just invested in a new R&D and compounding facility just next door to our factory space in Hackney that where before we were just making the best of an old Victorian button factory, we've pretty much got a new build now for that and we've equipped it out like a state-of-the-art lab and a mixing machine for the next generation of our technology. So behind Sugru and the product and everything, there is actually amazing technology which we've patented. We've granted patents in Europe, China, India and the US. There's a lot of serious science behind it, which sometimes I think we don't do justice to because we're such a fun brand that people don't know that there's PhD scientists doing amazing stuff. But We've got a new formula that is going to launch later on this year because Sugar is in the DIY space for adhesives and we learned that families and kids actually really love it. And so we invested in a chemistry that will pass through the toy regulations and that's going to be huge for us. So you've become this grown-up business. Does it make it hard to maintain that startup buzz, that disruptor energy? Yeah, I'd say we've definitely been through a transition. So where it started out, super fun, and that was like all it was. You've got to prioritise sometimes the really boring stuff over the fun stuff. And so I'd say there was about two years where I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it because I actually love just learning new things and being challenged. But it was really hard because there was so much of the investment that we were doing was into things that people couldn't see. Say the supply chain, the manufacturing, the packaging, the systems, IT, all that sort of stuff. But now, coming out the other side, it has been so worth it because we have those systems in place. We have those people and now we can have fun, but it can actually scale. So like, it's not just, oh, let's do crazy stuff. It's OK, these are our customers. This is what they like. Let's target them nicely so that they'll get the stuff that's really going to go down well. And being able to channel creativity to the people who are really going to appreciate it is actually so much more rewarding in the end. And you have to lead that company differently. Absolutely. And I suppose there, personally, for me, it's been amazing to work together with Porik, our, our general manager, because our styles are so different. And for me, I will be able to help people imagine a future that doesn't exist. I'll be able to help people imagine it a different way. Whereas he's so practical, he's able to kind of reassure them with the numbers and the plan and the forecasting and all that sort of stuff. So I think the combination of the two works and it means that we just both play to our strengths. Whereas before, when I was trying to do the serious management, it wasn't my strength. It's fine when you're 10 people, but then when you hire really good people, they just expect more and so you got to give it to them. Jane succeeded in marketing her product on a low budget by building up a community of fans on the internet. How easy is that today now that the internet has become a much more crowded space? I put the question to Aurore Hoshard of Cass Business School. That's the tricky bit, isn't it? I think today, because it's something that is more common that entrepreneurs would use Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, obviously nothing goes for free now. So I think you really have to know how to use those platforms and be very focused. I mean, you can now learn exactly how to use, for example, Facebook and run very targeted campaigns. But it really takes time to learn how to use them. Just having a Facebook page, for example, and getting people to like your Facebook page is not good enough anymore. 
if you want to be noticed, Facebook are really good about this. They've got algorithm now that they will only show your page according to certain criteria. So if you want to be actually noticed, you will have to promote or to boost your threads on social media, on, on Facebook, for example, or on Twitter, you will have to promote your tweet. Because very unlikely, with so many tweets on the Twitter sphere, that's the only way to get noticed is to actually put money behind it. Is that something that you can do yourself or you need to hire a social media specialist? Yes, I would say, especially if you're early stage, it's really something you can learn. Absolutely. And I would actually encourage people to learn. I mean, I think it's something that Jen did really well. At the beginning, when she realized that she didn't have the scientific background to actually create that product, she learned and she surrounded herself with experts and scientists. Same way for marketing. I think it's something that even if you're not born a marketer, it's definitely something you can learn. Universities, but also some organizations now sell business courses. And within two, three hours, you can learn. But obviously you have to do. So you can't just learn you know, the theory. You have to then apply. I asked Jane what she felt was the most important lesson from her experience with Sugru. I think it is really to do things in our own way. Even from raising investment, you know, early on, we went all the ordinary investment channels, traditional investment funds and angels and so on. And two years ago, we did crowdfunding with Crowdcube for the first time, and it was incredible. We ended up raising three times our target and... Our community basically was investing in the business and then we were able to kind of show the demand and get a lot of investors on board. It's about raising the finance to expand while at the same time doing it in a way that is actually so fitting with the way that we do our marketing and build our brand anyway, which is about community and a movement of people that believe in fixing and believe in this product and basically sharing the reward with them in the end because they end up being able to buy shares in the company even if they're only putting like £500 in or whatever then they feel like they're a total Sugru evangelist so we're doing that on Crowdcube again at the moment to expand and launch our new range for the family that I was mentioning Next week we talk to an entrepreneur who found that an early legal challenge acted as a catalyst to grow the business very fast In the meantime if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes you can visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.